If you would turn in your copy of the scriptures to Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 27, as Caleb read this morning. Um, this is a very interesting episode in the life of Christ. I was thinking, you know, if you are pulled over on the highway, uh, driving along with a red light behind you, and it pulls up close to you, and it's a 2004 two-toned Toyota Corolla, and it has a kind of a makeshift red light on the top that can be removed. And on the side of that car, you see this hand-painted star. And, and out of it crawls this guy, and he comes up to your car, and he's got sort of a clown-looking uh, police suit on. You're going to be asking questions. You're going to be thinking, who is this guy, and who is he trying to fool? And if he takes your keys and then shoots out your tires, you're going to get angry and you're going to demand, who do you think you are? You don't have any authority to do these things. But seriously, authority is a big issue. Who has it? Who does not have authority? Who gave this person authority? We've been asking that question for the last two years with all these different things going on, even in our own local government and things like that. How did they get that authority? See, when someone's authority infringes on my turf or your turf, we tend to get a little testy, don't we? We are not alone. Verse 27 says, Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, the teachers of the law, the lawyers, that's who these scribes are, and the elders came to him. Let's pray as we dig in to see what they say. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it has been expressed so often this morning. It is living and powerful. It is sharper than a two-edged sword and it pierces even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. And it judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. Lord, there's nothing like that. And yet we have been given that precious treasure. Lord, we come to this passage now of this real life event that literally took place about 2,000 years ago in the city of Jerusalem with, with the Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to understand what is taking place here, what Mark intended for us to understand, and more what your Spirit intended for us to understand as you wrote through him. So Lord, lead us and guide us in your word. Help me in my frailty and my simple simplicity of who I am. Please just help me to speak for you. Grant me humility. You know how proud I am so often. Please speak through your word to us today. and Show us you. Show us more of you, as we've seen already this morning. Manifest yourself to us. Amen. We begin with some interrogating questions, and the first are some very insincere questions that are offered, and it takes place in a confrontation at the temple. That morning, you see, Jesus and his disciples had again walked the two-mile stretch from Bethany back to Jerusalem, and they have entered into the temple. That is really their goal, to get to the temple. The Gospels of Matthew and Luke add that Jesus is teaching in the temple. And Luke goes on to say he was preaching the gospel. Now Matthew Henry describes that Jesus was walking in the temple. 
He was teaching the people, first one company and then another. The cloisters of the piazzas in the courts of the temple were fitted for this purpose, end quote. You see, teaching did not occur in sit-down classroom style like we so often see today. Teaching happened as the rabbi walked and spoke with those who literally were following right around him. And that same was true for Jesus. You see, as he walked through the temple courtyards, large crowds followed him wherever he went. And he preached the gospel to them. Now that makes me think, and I hope it does to you, would that have been something to hear? Christ himself preaching the gospel. Surely, surely it included the lostness of man and sin. Who could have told us that like Jesus did? The weakness and futility of trying to make yourself right before God by obeying the commandments. How refreshing would that have been to these people who were burdened down by this heavy-handed Judaism. The holiness of God. The wrath of God. The mercy and the grace of God. And then, to top it off, who He Himself is. The Messiah who would bring salvation and life. The one that had been spoken of for thousands of years. We don't have the privilege of knowing specifically what Jesus taught. But consider what it would have been like to hear him in person. The perfect preacher. The perfect preacher. In the temple. With the added intensity. That his crucifixion and resurrection are only a few days away. And he well knows that. What kind of intensity would that have added to his preaching? I can only imagine what that would have been like. As he looked at these people and shared with them who he was. In the very building that was constructed for the glory of God. What depth he would have shared. As Luke 19.48 says. All the people were hanging on to every word he said. It's Wednesday. Perhaps Tuesday by some estimations. Only 24 hours earlier. Jesus had made a hash of the temple market that had been set up by the high priest. Yes, that market provided a convenience for traveling worshipers, those who came from long distance by foot to offer sacrifices to God. There they could buy a sacrifice on site. But that is not why Jesus called it a den of thieves. It was because temple money changers would charge an exorbitant exchange fee for the common people to come with their Roman coins and exchange them for Jewish coins that would be acceptable for temple offerings. The sellers of animals for sacrifice, they would also demand high prices for their animals that were essentially already temple approved. If you brought your own, you didn't know. But if you bought one of theirs at this high price, okay, you're assured that it's a temple-approved sacrifice. It was a racket where the high priest made out quite well from the booth fees and the percentage cuts. When Jesus cleansed the temple of this thievery, he also caused great offense and financial injury to the religious elite who were running the temple. Considering these circumstances, who do you think came looking for Jesus the very next day? The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. You see, this makes up a representative coalition of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a 71-man, essentially supreme court that ruled over all of Jewish 
religious issues. They ruled supremely over the, whatever went on in the temple. They even influenced much of the civil law and order in Judea at that time. These guys represented that Sanhedrin, that power group. And they said to Jesus, verse 28, By what authority are you doing these things? Then who gave you this authority to do these things? Authority. Here it is a Greek word, exousia. It is a key word in this confrontation between Jesus and the Sanhedrin leaders. Exousia means the right or the liberty or the privilege to do something. One definition describes it as a delegated influence. Something that was given to someone that would allow them to influence, to have power. Now, the question is, what were these things that the priests, scribes, and elders are questioning Jesus' authority to do? Well, obviously, the cleansing of the temple is top of mind. That was the latest issue. Perhaps it is the most direct affront to the Sanhedrin's command. And financially it was the most injurious. But Jesus claimed and exuded authority over far more than this one event. For instance, his authoritative teaching. Mark 1, verse 20 through 21 and 22. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. The contrast. He taught with authority. He spoke. He was God. He spoke as God to them. The scribes, they were always quoting everybody else. They could not speak like Jesus did. He spoke with authority. Mark 7, 28, or Matthew, excuse me, 7, 28 and 29. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings, and this was when he was speaking to the people on the mountainside, the Sermon on the Mount, that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. What about his authority for the countless miracles he performed? The power he had to heal sickness, disease. Look, the blind who now see. The lame who now, they don't just walk. They're jumping and leaping and they're praising God. What about the dead who are now living and breathing and some giving testimony to Jesus like Lazarus? What about his authority to command the powers of natural phenomena? Like dissolving a hurricane storm? into a calm, placid, mirror-like surface of sea. Or when he multiplied five small loaves of bread, two little small fish, and he made it into meals for over 10,000 people who had come to hear him speak. What about his authority to defy gravity or to defy surface, t- or surface tension on water? Here he is, he's walking across this lake and it's storming. And he's walking on that as if he is on dry ground. He had authority over everything. What about his power over the supernatural world to rule and cast out demons that possessed so many of those who came to him desperately? Some of the greatest testimonies, early testimonies of who Jesus really was came from who? It came from the demons for they knew who he was. And yet he had a power to cast them out and into swine and they fall into the lake and drown. He could cast out thousands. He could cast out powerful ones. He had complete control. He had such authority. 
In Mark 1, 27, it says, They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey Him. That's not all. During His three-year ministry, Jesus also claimed authority over the Sabbath. He claimed authority over the oral traditions that the Pharisees had amassed and lived by and demanded. He even exercised authority to forgive sins. And the question was asked, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus had that authority. Now you might be thinking, well here we go again with these resentful religious despots. They're trying to challenge Jesus with one more complaint. They're just jealous and they're angry because the cash cow at the temple was halted. And now all the people are following him around in the temple. But no, authority here goes far deeper than that. Authority is at the very core of their attack on Jesus. It has always been the underlying thorn in their side. Who is this man? And why can he do what he does? How can he speak as he is? Why does he do these things? Actually, Jesus also acknowledged that understanding his authority and where he got this exousia is absolutely essential. It is indispensable. It is indispensable even for us today. Authority, authority was the one insight that most distinguished a non-Jew, a Gentile, in fact a Roman centurion even, as having greater faith than all the Israelites Jesus had witnessed. Please turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Now we're going to do quite a bit of reading this morning. And praise God, I was talking with another brother how much scripture has been shared this morning and how God has, has really blessed us. We're going to read quite a bit this morning. Luke chapter 7, verse 1 through 10. Then grasp authority as we look at this this morning. Now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum and a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. That is the key verse right there. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Jesus did not do that very often in Scripture. Jesus marveled at this man and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. You see, this, serve, this centurion, he understood authority. And he understood it that he could tell this one to do this and do this one to do that. But why? Because he was under authority. He was a centurion, over a hundred. Impressive. But he is not nearly as impressive as Caesar 
or those above him. He had authority because he was under one who had the authority. The centurion believed that Jesus not only possessed miraculous power, but that this power, this authority, this exousia, was delegated, delegated to Jesus by God the Father. This, this is the great objection. It's not a question actually. It's the great objection on the minds of the priests, scribes, and elders. Their question acknowledges that there is some authority going on here. Some power that exists for Jesus to do these things. But they know he has none of the credentials they recognize. He is not a member of the illustrious Sanhedrin. He has not graduated from any of their schools nor studied under any of their rabbis. He is not from the priestly line of the Levites. In fact, his birth is questionably illegitimate. And he, he is from a despised little village of nobodies called Nazareth. Who is he? The Pharisees have already said his power was from the devil. They said that Jesus worked in league with the devil in order to cast out demons. Now, where they thought his authoritative teaching and his power to raise the dead and to heal the sick came from, they do not say. But now, how he thought he could tear up their temple marketplace and get away with it, this is over the top. And it would not be tolerated any longer. The Sanhedrin, they have no intention of sincerely finding out Jesus' source of authority. Their question is made in objection to everything he has taught and done. They have long sought to destroy him. Now Jesus is not only in their city, but he has infested their precious temple. He must be eliminated. Their strategy with this question now assumes what? That Jesus will again claim his authority is from God. His authority is from his Father. These religious leaders know that Jesus actually did claim this on several occasions. John 5.18 Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath but also said that God was his Father making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them Most assuredly I say to you the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do for whatever he does the Son also does in like manner. Please look in your copy of the scriptures now, John 8, 31. My point is, these guys knew it, and yet they're trying to trap him. John 8, 31, and this is settled in and follow along as I read this. We're going to go from 31 to 59. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? And Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, 
a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We were not born of fornication. Hear that in their voices? We were not like you, born of fornication. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. For he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And I tell and if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's word. Therefore you do not hear because you are not of God. And then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Is there any question from that interchange between Jesus and the, the leaders, the Pharisees, that they knew clearly who he was? He had spoken it clearly, but they have been blinded by their own pride and their own unwillingness to hear their father is the devil. Jesus' father is God. The contrast is clear already early in John. Later in John 12, verse 49 and 50, it was not a one-time thing. Jesus stated, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that His command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. If Jesus again claims authority from God and sonship with God His Father... These leaders at this moment in the temple are prepared to charge him with blasphemy. That is their goal. It is a religious crime that is punishable by execution. <clears throat> but Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question. Then answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. It is an incisive question. An incisive question is one that is intel intelligently analytical and clear thinking. No one was as intelligently analytical and clear thinking as Jesus. First he spells out the conditions. He answers a question with a probing deeper question. This was a common tactic used among rabbis when they would get into discussions and debates. So he asks them this question and he is telling them that his willingness to answer their question depends upon their own integrity. I will answer you, but you answer this. So what will Jesus ask? Here is that question. The, the baptism of John. Was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. Are these men willing now to contest the prophet? At first blush, some think this is simply an evasive move by Jesus to throw the Sanhedrin off his trail. If he flips the table and puts them in an awkward spot, then heat is back on these accusers. However, there is much, much more 
to Jesus' reply. Why the baptism of John? Why the baptism of John? John's life of ministry was baptism of repentance by all. No exceptions made for Jewish authorities. Baptism of repentance for all. John came baptizing, wrote Mark, in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. But that is not all John said. Turn to Matthew 3. Matthew 3, 7 through 10. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, this is John, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Soft talk from John? No. He is speaking to these men who have come out of the city, out of the temple, the authorities. And he is putting it to their face who they really are. Is he being mean? No. He is offering the only hope that they have. And it's the only way to break through that pride. But he confronts them directly. Luke 7 verse 30. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. You see their response to John? They rejected it. They would not go through the baptism. They would not accept his command for repentance. John's ministry was also what? Remember how he was prophesied? He was to come and prepare the way before the Lord. The religious leaders did not appreciate John's evaluation of their lives, nor did they agree with his declaration of who this Jesus was. Turn John chapter 1. John 1 beginning with verse 19. Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, well, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Well, who are you? That we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize, if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, And here is his testimony, I baptize with water. But there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. John made clear who this Christ would be, this Messiah. They didn't like the, his evaluation of them. They didn't like his assessment of Christ. And then 
to top this off, perhaps this is the center point of the baptism of John, the participants at the baptism. You see, even if you lay aside all that John testified about Jesus, if you didn't hear him breathe a word, you still have the impact and the testimony of the literal and specific baptism of John. Turn again to Matthew 3. Good to hear those pages rustling and not just flipping it on your phone. So, <laughs> Matthew 3, 13. Try to set yourself in this setting. This is a narrative. That's okay to do. Try to imagine what's going on here. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. What kind of a testimony would that be? To have God himself speak from the heavens. The, the baptism of John. God himself spoke at that moment. The Holy Spirit descended upon him at that moment. This man was given authority. This God-man was the Messiah. John, like Jesus, was not a member of the Jewish authorities. John, like Jesus, was despised by the Jewish leaders. And like Jesus, he had massive support from the common people. He was seen as a hero. John, like Jesus, had received his authority directly from God. And with that question, the priests, scribes, and elders are faced with a very imposing dilemma. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven... He will say, well then, why did you not believe him? It says they discussed it with one another. Privately, I might add. And, and not realizing that their targeted opponent, Jesus, was well aware of every thought in their mind, let alone every word that they uttered in this little secret meeting here. The implication of agreeing that, Jesus is, or that John's baptism was from heaven, that if John was speaking from God, then Jesus must be the Messiah. And these light leaders would never surrender to that. They would not allow that. Verse 32. But if we say for men, they feared the people. For all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. A real prophet. A legitimate prophet. Sent by God. Spoken through by God. From men? You see, John the Baptist was revered so highly among the people that the Sanhedrin now feared not only for their popularity and their power, but for their very lives. In Luke 20 verse 6 it records that they say all the people will stone us to death. For they are convinced that John was a prophet. So what did they do? They answered and said we do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them. Well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What an answer. You see who this is? What an answer from the highest religious minds in the land. We do not know. 
how humiliating this must have been for them to come to. These are the experts. They're the lawyers. They're the elders and rulers. These are those closest to God in their own eyes. But they do not know. Jesus' response implies that he knows they know. He knows they know. And he will give no further explanation, especially not to participate and cooperate with their futile attempt to trap him. As Edwards wrote, if, if there is faith even as small as a mustard seed, Jesus responds, truly I tell you. But in the face of calculated unbelief, he responds, neither will I tell you. Neither will I tell you. You see, Jesus did not walk blindly into the Sanhedrin trap to expedite their execution. He is the master even of the timing of his all-important death on the cross. It will occur on the manner and on the day that he determined before the beginning of time. Not one day sooner nor later. It won't be by stoning. It will be by that method which fulfills prophecy. But in this situation and to these men, he will immediately follow up with a clear and penetrating parable that declares exactly who he is and uncovers precisely who these priests, scribes, and elders are in the sight of God. But that comes next week. That is the parable that we will begin in next week. Read ahead. Read ahead. See how this relates to what we have looked at this morning with authority. Look at this parable with a new insight, with context. Understand it, and if the Lord gives another opportunity, we'll come back and study this word together. Objection. In closing, objection of Jesus' authority has not changed. Resistance to the Lordship of Christ inevitably boils down to a man or woman's rejection of the authority of Jesus Christ. They, some of you, refuse to acknowledge and then surrender to His authority as God and King over the world and surrender to His authority as God and King over your own personal life. Jesus is God. And His authority comes from the Father. No right or excuse will suffice anyone at any time. He is King. And you must respond to Him. You see, Jesus commands with absolute authority to all men. What is written by John in 1 John 3.23. And this is His commandment. That we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. And love one another as He gave His commandment. It's not simply an invitation. It is a command. It is not simply an opportunity. It is what is required. Jesus commands with absolute authority to His children. But seek first the kingdom of God. And His righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. How much authority have you surrendered to King Jesus in your life? Will you honor Him as King? Will you surrender to His authority? Will you pay Him homage with your life? Second by second, moment by moment. Will He have that authority? Yes, He has it. Will you give it? Will you surrender? Will you acknowledge it and live 
as one of his own children, as one of his own subjects, as one of his own sons, as one of his own slaves, as his precious one that he purchased. How will his authority affect your time with him in prayer? We're going to drill down a little more specifically. How will his authority influence your seeking him in his word? How will his authority rule your role in loving his bride, the church? How will his authority lead your love for others? And lastly, how will his authority compel your telling those in this world who this king is and how desperately they need him and his salvation, the gospel? Will it compel you? Will his authority, his demands, his requirements compel you to do this? For the love of Christ compels us. Closing with Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Again, Lord, may it cut through the sin and the pride, the, the, the thick-mindedness, the, the confusion, the deceptions of this world, the deceptions of the enemy. Lord, the attractions of our flesh, please cut through it. And lay us open before you. As your word says, continuing there, that there is nothing hidden in your sight, but all things are naked and open to him to whom we must give an account. Lord, please, please work in us and, and create in us hearts that love you in obedience and full fervor. Lord, give us tongues to speak of you, to praise you publicly, to praise you privately, to speak of you wherever we go. For you are king and your authority. You have gripped my heart and mind with your authority through these passages. Lord, may that be true for many of us that we will, will surrender and we will follow you as our king in every way possible. As was mentioned with our tongue, with our time, with our eyes. Lord, in our family, in our marriages, with our children, with our parents, in our workplace, in our privacy. Lord, rule as king. Thank you that you would, you would stoop so low as to take people like us and even give us such a privilege. You are worthy of praise for eternity. In your name we pray, amen.